The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I am delighted to welcome back one of my favorite guests, Dr. Warren Porter, who is a professor in the zoology department at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. He has a specialty in molecular and environmental toxicology, specifically looking at the effects of pesticides, especially the endocrine-disrupting pesticides, their mixtures in the environment, and how those affect our neurological function, our immune system, and our endocrine function. So welcome, Dr. Porter. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, I saw an article that you forwarded to me about bed bugs. And now normally, you know, Food (laughs) Sleuth Radio, we're talking about food that we ingest in this case, we're talking about humans being the food for a pesky little creature called the bed bug, and there is quite an alarmist kind of feeling out there about bed bugs. People are afraid to stay in motels, and the industry is looking at spraying mattresses with harmful pesticides, and you say, no, we don't need to do that. Not at all, because bed bugs are, like other insects, are very, very sensitive to being able to breathe, just like we are, and a baby powder... The cornstarch baby powder is an excellent alternative to poisoning because, and this is what we do in our house, if when our dog occasionally will bring in a flea, she jumps up on our bed or, or bed bugs and they get started in there, you start getting some itching, we just peel back the uh, sheets, toss them in the washing machine and sprinkle baby powder all over the mattress and then just work it in with our hands, you know, just rub it back and forth and instantly all of them are gone. And if our dog gets them on her, we dust her too. <clears throat> and we have some chickens, and we've dusted them, and it just, it's incredible. It just kills them instantly, and there's no poisons, nothing at all, and it's totally harmless. And why aren't we reading this on the front page of all of our major national newspapers? Because the companies uh, that sell pesticides can make a whole lot more money if we buy their poisons instead. Yes, and these poisons have some very serious consequences, and I've had the pleasure of hearing you speak at several conferences, including Beyond Pesticides, a couple of years ago, in which you described the endocrine-disrupting pesticides in particular. Now, the particular pesticides that are used to kill bed bugs that the industry wants to put on mattresses, are those of the endocrine-disrupting category? Well, I do not know immediately because I'm not sure which pesticide you're talking about, but I do want to make one point first. Okay. And that is that whenever you've got a pesticide and whenever you affect either the nervous or the endocrine or the immune systems, and most of these pesticides tend to be targeted toward the nervous system, because those three systems, your hormone system, your nervous system, your immune system, are all tied together, they talk to each other. There are about at least 50 to 60 molecules, somewhere in that range, that are used by those three systems to talk to each other all the time. And what we showed way back in 1999 in a paper looking at atrazine and nitrate was that if you impact uh, one of those three systems, you hit the other two as well. 
And there are other papers out there that have been showing the neuroendocrine immune system for the last 20 years or so at least. So, and, and what we found in subsequent studies, one in uh, 2002 and then another one in, in 2009 where we looked at multiple effects on these three systems where we would measure one of the systems and then look to see whether there were effects on the other systems. We were, we were picking those kinds of things up. So if you get a nerve poison, which is mostly what these bed bug sprays are, you can be pretty sure there's likely also an endocrine and also an immune function impact as well. What we see is compromise of immune function and changes in hormone levels. Now, one of the things that people really need to understand is that your hormones in your body work in an incredibly tiny concentration range. For example, the human female, her reproductive cycle each month has estrogen varying between 440 parts per trillion. That is so far below anything EPA looks at or requires in terms of any kind of testing that it isn't even relevant. And so the point I'm making here is that these chemicals can have effects that are never measured by any ordinary test in the registration process by the EPA. The EPA does not mandate hormonal or immune or endocrine tests. And at these very low concentrations, these are the systems that are being modulated and modified. Maybe I should just stop here. I don't want to talk too much. No, I think this is fascinating because I think there's a tendency for consumers to look at pesticides from two perspectives. One is that if a pesticide or an herbicide is sold, if it's available on the market, then it must be safe. It must be tested. And the other misconception that I think we're all susceptible to feel is that the dose makes the poison. In other words, if it's just a little bit, it's not a problem. But if it's a lot, then we've got something to worry about. And it looks like your research shows, and others as well, show that it's actually very small doses that can have the biggest effect. That's exactly right in both cases. First, I want to just comment a little bit on this. If it's sold, it's safe. Yeah. Uh, What consumers need to understand is that this whole marketing of pesticides is essentially a bait-and-switch process. What is registered is never what is sold. Mm. In fact, I think you can probably make the statement that there is no registered pesticide sold that has ever been actually tested by the EPA. And the reason I can say that is because what you buy off the shelf is not only the active ingredient, which is the only thing that is registered, but there are surfactants and special solvents, fat-soluble solvents that are in there that are in there for very, very special reasons. In order to kill, and, and that's what all pesticides are designed to do, they're designed to get inside either a plant or an animal and kill it, you have to pass two barriers. Both of them are waxy surfaces. The first barrier is the outer surface of the skin and and the outer surface of of waxy leaves, as you can notice whenever you put water on the surface or when you take a shower and watch the water bead up on you. Sure. So what they do is they'll put in solvents in there, fat-soluble solvents. Fats dissolve in fats, and that gets it through the surface of the skin of the organism. Then the second thing is you've got to get it inside the cell in order to kill. Now, every cell membrane is, again, made up of lipids, of phospholipids, technically. And so the solvents, these non-ionic or chargeless solvents that are fat-soluble, again, promote entry through the cell membrane. And then the active ingredient is carrying on it 
basically time bombs. They are electrostatic charges, small molecular groups or ions like chloride ions that have a negative charge or other groups that might have a positive charge. And the purpose of those charges on the molecule is to be attracted to any opposite charge inside the cell. So, for example, if you've got a negatively charged molecule, which is what most herbicides are like, that will be attracted to anything that's positive in the cell. Or alternatively, if the molecule has a positive charge, it would be attracted to anything that's negatively charged in the cell. Now you're talking millions and millions of different kinds of molecules in a cell. And so the possibilities of these pesticide molecules that get inside each cell of the body is basically it's like a molecular bull in a china shop. You, you, can't, you can't even begin to predict all of the things that are going to happen. And it's one reason why we see so many effects of, of a particular pesticide, like, for example, Roundup. Mm-hmm. Uh, way back in 1983, we knew there were big problems with it. And I have in front of me a suite of papers published by independent scientists showing all kinds of effects on how Roundup, for example, can modulate the ability to make sex steroids. And if you start changing your sex steroids, especially if you've got a fetus that's depending on the, the sex steroid ratio to decide if I'm going to be male or female, you may alter the uh, developmental pattern of that embryo. And it's been shown in sea urchins, for example, uh, that Roundup can alter that, their functions. The mixture also has been documented Uh, the one that you actually buy, to inhibit the defensive enzymes of the body, which means that if you did have any defenses, they're going to be compromised. And, of course, fetuses and children who haven't reached puberty essentially have no defenses. They sort of have their hands tied behind their backs, if you will, chemically. They have absolutely no defenses. And these kinds of tests are never done by EPA to, to look at embryos and how well they function. And they're looking, the embryos are looking at parts per trillion concentrations. And so they're being basically bombarded on a daily basis. We all are by these kinds of chemicals are getting in across our skin. They're getting into the cells of our body. And they have all kinds of potential things that they can do to the way we function, including affecting our energy, metabolism, and altering the steroid hormone processes that happen in the mitochondria, which are the powerhouses of our cells. And these compounds that you are describing are listed on the labels of these products as inerts. Yes, they, they, they call them inerts or other ingredients. That, that's sometimes it, if they're even listed. And usually, well, they're never specifically identified. But when you start looking into what are these things, are they really inerts? And the fact is they are anything but inerts. Exactly. They're solvents like toluene, benzene, known carcinogens. Mm-hmm. And the registration process, because it is so selective in terms of focusing only on the active ingredient, also ignores any byproducts of the manufacturer. Like in 2,4-D, these are, that's an herbicide, very popular herbicide, and it always contains at least two forms of dioxin, which is the most potent estrogen on the planet with a very, very long half-life. And what it can do is look like the female hormone estrogen, which man, and it's been shown that these kinds of effects can change sex development. 
I have a question about 2,4-D, Dr. Porter. Okay. Uh, I was recently reading some news from the University of Missouri where researchers were celebrating the fact that they had come up with a new stackable trait on some of these genetically modified crops where they would now be resistant to not only glyphosate or the active ingredient in Roundup, but also 2,4-D. And this, of course, is a desirable trait because now weeds have developed resistance to glyphosate or Roundup. And I'm very concerned about the 2,4-D, so I'm glad you mentioned the issue of dioxin. Why are farmers not up in arms about these issues? Are we so uninformed about the toxic effects of these pesticides and herbicides? We are told, or if you read the uh, documentation from chemical companies selling these materials, they claim that these things are perfectly safe. Right. And we've already talked about many reasons why they're not safe. Firstly, what you buy is not what is registered, so that's a bait and switch right there. And then they're not safe for six other reasons, actually, that we identified in our 1999 paper on atrazine and nitrate. There are serious, serious flaws in the whole registration process, even of the active ingredient. Mixtures are missing, for example. Low doses are never tested, and this is where endocrine and neurological and immune effects can occur. And the the surprising thing is that we now have data showing that these kinds of effects are greater the lower you go in the dose range. And that's a that's a biological phenomenon that's related to simply how enzymes work. They they like they only really respond in very very low doses that they're used to looking at, and if you're outside those ranges, you don't get nearly the kinds of response that you do down in these parts per trillion, which turned out to be very common in humans. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Warren Porter. He is in the Department of Zoology at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and his expertise is in low-dose pesticide mixtures and how they affect neurological function, immune systems, and endocrine function. Dr. Porter, I want to ask you about a recent paper that just crossed my desk looking at, well, there were two papers. One was environmental illness and the costs associated with these toxins in the environment, and the other has to do with birth defects as they relate to the use of Roundup. And I have to go back and say again, consumers are sold these herbicides over-the-counter in your everyday garden shop, and we are told that they are relatively safe. If you talk to Monsanto, Monsanto will tell you, well, it breaks down very easily, very quickly. And yet now we're finding that there were regulators who actually knew that Roundup caused birth defects. And are we going to pull this product from the market? What can we make of this? Do you remember Big Tobacco and how they de- denied that there were any health effects, even though we had almost 50 years' worth of data showing that there were all kinds of problems with tobacco. Great analogy. <laughs> you also know that the main PR person for the tobacco industry, when they went belly up, moved over to the chemical industry, mm. and he began to direct their PR program in the same way he did for tobacco, deny the problem, deny the problem. EPA can't check any industry claims. Industry does all the testing, and they've been shown by Fred Vomsall and his colleagues right there at Columbia, Missouri, that in the case of feminization types of effects and changes of sex, that 
the industry tests used a strain of rat that was basically immune to the to the chemicals that they were giving it, and so there was no effect, and so they could claim there was no effect, but it was a special strain of rat they used. And every time an independent researcher looked into it, they got effects, and industry data showed, oh, there's no effect. But nobody ever talked about what strain of animal, test animal, the industry was using. And it was only by chance that they began to uncover all of this. And that's well documented in a, in a peer-reviewed paper in Environmental Health Perspectives just a few years ago. And that is a great source for listeners who want to follow this area of study, Environmental Health Perspectives, and that's actually out of the National Institutes of Health. Yes, that's a fabulous place, and it's, it's readable yes, it is. for the general lay person. Yes. So here we are. We're planting our garden. We're concerned now that we hear about birth defects. It doesn't sound like these products are going to be pulled from the market anytime soon. What can the average gardener farmer do? Are there alternatives to these toxic compounds? We mentioned simply using talcum powder for bed bugs. What about garden pests? Oh, firstly, if you have a healthy organic garden, you don't have problems with pests because you've got all kinds of natural predators in there that consume your problem. We don't ever use herbicides or anything in our gardens, and we never have a major pest problem. Interestingly, I was just reading two weeks ago about a coffee plantation, organic coffee and down in, in Central America and some of these plantations, and they uh, never have any major health or, or pest problems because they're all organic, and the complexity of the system is, is such that uh, when a pest begins to rear its ugly head, uh, the, uh, the natural predators come right in and take care of it right. uh, in a very complex way. But if you did want to do something in your garden, if you've got a weed, for example, that you wanted to take care of, vinegar is a wonderful way. to It just simply strips off the waxy surface on the leaf and the thing that rolls up and dies because it dries out. Excellent. So just put that in a spray bottle. Yeah, yeah. When we, we, when we want to take care of thistles or something like that and, and, and there are too many to pull or something, whatever reason, or a Creeping Charlie, uh, you just keep going after them and exhaust the plant until it dies. Mm-hmm. And vinegar is totally non-toxic. Mm-hmm. Are you concerned at all about the recent approval of the new Roundup-resistant crops, alfalfa and sugar beets? Oh, man. Firstly, people need to understand that these genetically engineered crops are not genetically engineered to produce more food. In fact, data from research over 20 years, side-by-side experiments at the Rodale Institute, show that organic soils outproduce genetically engineered crops and chemically treated soils when uh, drought kind of conditions persist and there's no difference in production during good years. Mm-hmm. That's one thing to remember, that the claims that we've got to have poisons to grow food for our planet are totally, absolutely uh, fabricated. The uh, scientific data shows just the opposite, that organic soils are much better. I have a, a saying about genetically engineered crops. GMO stands for, generally means lots of other chemicals in your food because farmers will use more of the pesticide and so the concentration of these pesticides in food goes up and that's exactly what happened when uh, Roundup Ready soybeans first hit the market. The, The standard for them was three parts per million. That was the allowable concentration. But when the, when the genetically modified soybeans came on the market, turned out they were running about 20 parts per million instead of only three, which was the limit. And that was so the glyphosate residue? That was, yeah, that was, that was Roundup. That's Roundup, right. right. 
And so what happened was Monsanto went to the EPA and said, hey, we need higher limits. And the EPA said, okay. And then they repeated that process in other countries around the globe that were uh, also raising genetically engineered crops. It's really uh, genetically engineered crops are a vehicle for selling more pesticides, and that means it's also a vehicle for getting more poisons into our food supply. I think that is an absolutely such an important bottom line statement that you just made. And I don't believe that people really understand that genetically engineered crops or GMOs are indeed engineered to withstand the spraying of herbicides or pesticides. That's exactly what they're doing because if if they're resistant to the pesticide, the farmer can use more. Exactly. And then that means they make more money, the chemical companies. Now, you are studying the biological effects of these compounds and specifically on the neurological, the endocrine systems. In terms of what we're seeing today with regard to children's illnesses, environmental illnesses, some of the delays in learning, the ADHD, the autism spectrum disorder, do you think there's a connection? It's already been demonstrated in the literature that there are connections. Mm. Absolutely. And yet not enough to have these chemicals pulled from our, from our shelves. This is the great paradox. The only way to explain it is money is changing hands. That's the only way, and somewhere, somewhere it is, because clearly the scientific evidence has been ignored. Independent research is ignored. Mm-hmm. Basically, what, we're, what we hear from the regulatory agencies are the, the companies that make the pesticide, that, that collect all the data on its safety, though, but, and obviously they have a conflict of interest. We should trust that more than we should trust independent investigators who have no profit or special interest associated with their research. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. I was reading that the USDA was going to accept environmental impact statement research done by Monsanto, and I thought, gosh, is no one really aware of this possibility of conflict of interest? You know, we are so sensitive to conflict of interest in so many contexts, but when it comes to this kind of conflict of interest of safety data, that could affect our children, all of a sudden it's okay. Um, (laughs) That doesn't compute for me. Well, it always comes back to this message of, you know, we've got all of these people to feed in the world, and oh my goodness, organic is very nice, but, you know, we can't feed the world with that. And I don't buy that. I, I think that's a message that's being repeated so that it becomes believable. But as you mentioned earlier, the data coming out from the United Nations, the World Health Organization, those documents point to agroecological methods as being the only way to feed a growing population. That's exactly correct. Chemically treated soils, and they will be more chemically treated when you get GMO crops out there, those soils lose their porosity. They lose the microfauna and flora that support the healthy root systems and the nutritional supply to the plants. And so chemically treated soils will not hold water. And so when you get a drought, the first crops to go will be the genetically engineered crops. Uh, It's commonly known that typically genetically engineered crops require a lot more resources in order to produce the same stuff that organic crops can produce uh, with one-tenth the fertilizer input Mm -hmm. and water input. 
You know what else didn't get a whole lot of press was the President's Cancer Panel Report, which specifically made recommendations to choose foods that were grown without pesticides and herbicides and chemical fertilizers. And yet that report seemed to fall through the cracks. I never saw that in any mainstream media reports. Did you? No, no. And and it's really paradoxical because I read an account not too long ago that the instructions for Monsanto employees was to avoid chemically produced foods. Uh, the CEO of Monsanto apparently eats organic, and so does his family. <laughs> well, what's good for the goose should be good for the gander, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you in the last few remaining minutes that we have, are there any topics that, that I failed to inquire about that you'd like to address? I guess. The the main thing is that people need to understand a very few basic principles. Firstly, that fat dissolves in fat. And whenever you buy a pesticide mixture off the shelf, one that was not regulated by the EPA, because none of them are when they when you're talking the mixtures or those inert ingredients in there, whenever you have that kind of a circumstance, I'm sorry, and I've lost this train of thought, Oh, just would you repeat that, please? Sure. Just if you had any final comments yeah. that you'd like to make, and you started out by saying that fat dissolves in fat, and the pesticide mixtures on the market are not tested by EPA, and the ones that contain, the well, they all contain inert ingredients, which aren't inert, but those combinations of the active ingredient plus the inert, those aren't tested either. No, none of the... Uh None of the mixtures, none of the stuff that you buy off the shelf is ever regulated by the EPA. Nothing that you buy has ever been registered with the EPA because when what you buy is the registered active ingredient, but it turns out that many studies have shown that when you put all these other ingredients together, you get far more activity in terms of biological effects than you do for the active ingredient, which is the only part of the mixture that was actually registered. So it's a bait-and-switch operation. Fat dissolves in fat, so they put fatty solvents into the mixtures so that it will go through the skin, so it will go through the cell membranes, and then the uh, molecules can get inside the cell and just do anything they please. It's carte blanche. Mm -hmm. Whatever you want in terms of biological effects that could be happening. And your website, if I'm correctly understanding, has alternatives to these toxic compounds. Is that right? We do have, yes, we do have pointers uh, to one particular one in, uh, especially that is especially good. It's a, it's a wonderful book that was produced by a fellow named T- Steve Tveden, T-V-E-D-T-E-N, and uh, it's called the uh, the Best Pest Control 2. It's a full book, and it's totally free. It's on the web. Anybody can download it. It's very well organized, and any kind of problem you have, whether it's animal or plant, he's got a solution in there which is a a very effective solution for uh, controlling any kind of pest. Well, Dr. Porter, I want to thank you so much again for your time today. We've been speaking with Dr. Warren Porter, who's in the Department of Zoology at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. We will provide the website so that you can download the information that that Dr. Porter was uh, speaking about today. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. 
And I especially want to thank Dr. Porter for speaking out against things that can harm our children, our most precious resource that we have. Thank you. And I want to thank you, Dr. Porter, for providing such important information to our listeners today. Well, I want to thank you, too, because our children are our future. And if we mess that, uh, mess them up, we, we're messing up our future. It is incredibly important that we safeguard those children. And more and more doctors these days are are calling for a stop to the poisoning of our children. Uh, we're doing an incredible experiment with our children right now, and it's not a good experiment, and it's not sanctioned by any health organization that I know of. Well, thank you for keeping us informed. You're welcome. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Mm-hmm. 